Welcome to the Yukatashri, where we meander through politics, pop culture, church, and society to consider true human ends and how life may be enchanted. I am Joel, and he is Dave. We're here this week to discuss Pope Francis's encyclical, Fratelli Tutti, released on the 3rd of October 2020. Fratelli Tutti meaning all brothers. And neither of us know if we are saying it correctly, and we don't care, we're leaning in. <laughs> the subtitle is On Fraternity and Social Friendship. Now, we're discussing Pope Francis, who um, we're, I'm sure we've discussed before, um, but it raises a question that I need to ask, and I need to go back in time. I need to ask Calvinist bro, my Calvinist bro, Dave, you know, when he bros down as a Calvinist, <laughs> as a Calvinist bro. I need to ask him, what would Calvinist bro Dave say about later Dave doing a podcast episode on the Holy Father? <laughs> oh, man, so disappointed. So, so disappointed. I remember, like, giving an anti-Catholic uh, talk at our Christian um, student group at Sydney, uh, not Sydney, at my high school, Effing Boys High School. And I, yeah, probably... Need to do penance <laughs> for some of the horrible things they said. A Catholic teacher turned up to it and was just like, he was very, very kind and was just like, you tried, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was probably just encouraged that I wasn't smoking pot <laughs> behind the toilet. I mean, it is funny, isn't it? I grew up, so I grew up as listeners or no Pentecostal. Mm. And and if, we, if you were given a multi-choice question, you know, who is the Antichrist? Mm. Um, the Pope would be there as sort of A, B, C, and then maybe D would be the head of the United Nations, yeah. right, for some people sort of thing, right? Like, it, it's, it it's, in the, it's in the Presbyterian, the Westminster Confession, the older version has that, one of the points is that the Pope is the Antichrist. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I remember being as a kid, you'd be in this small group and somebody would pass you a book on like, you know, the evils of the Catholic Church and this sort of thing. You just kind of look back on it and think, Gosh, and then you wonder, you know, is this still a thing? And you go, for some people it, really it is. is. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I remember when we had the uh, Reformation celebration in Sydney and one of the big ticket items in the um, local Anglican news here was a group within the diocese that commits itself to trying to convert Catholics. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, you know, this really, like, like how much the time dedicated, like <laughs> you pick it. You know, if you're going to pick a thing to focus your life on in this current context and our political context, cultural and so on, and 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 it also made me kind of think it's 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 strange in ways because in, uh, to my look, I go for gold, whatever. But you know, <laughs> it's strange in ways because 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 like you can you can imagine why Catholics try to uh, make us jump the timer, mm. right? Because if you have an understanding that um, you know the one Holy Roman Church and if you're not in submission to the Pope, you know, this is what Matt Tan, when he came and did the uh, peace talks, <laughs> Dave used to run the thing called peace talks and our friend Matt Tan, a Catholic theologian, came along and, and thought he'd better open by telling us all to repent and submit to the Holy Roman Father, right? <laughs> That's um, what the Supreme Pontiff. <laughs> um, the Supreme Pontiff, yeah. And and you can understand, so you can understand Catholics want to, you know, because they, you know, the ecclesio- ecclesiologically, you're not, you know, if you're not in full communion, you're, you're in trouble, yeah. right? Um, but like for Protestants, it seems kind of funny, doesn't it? Because it's like, well, ecclesial affiliation doesn't really matter as long as you've got the kind of like, you know, underlying. Oh no, they would say that prob- if as long as you're relying on your works in any way, you're never you you may not have accepted. I mean, my how would my, you how would you know? But yeah, well, I mean that's the thing. <laughs> I mean, my, that said, the, the Calvinist that I was um, raised by and and 
and spiritually nourished by would would say, you know, it doesn't really matter how, as long as you have faith in Christ, that that's the important thing, and wouldn't say that Catholics aren't saved and things like that. Anyway, this is a real digression from what we're talking. About. Yeah, but it's by the way, did you know right, that we have some new competition for our um, for our podcast? Um, from I what? keep getting ads on my Facebook stream saying Mark Driscoll is back. Oh. And he has, he and his wife oh, are doing yeah. a podcast called. Are they Real- are they specifically targeting misogynists, or is it just like a general <laughs> thing? <laughs> Someone said I, I asked on Facebook like I why why am I getting targeted ads for Mark Driscoll and his wife doing a real marriage, um, fake blonde hair podcast, and um, and people said oh it's either because of your loneliness your loneliness episode or your narcissism episode. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that I mean isn't that really just nice what a redemption mm. story that is you know mm. you can completely blow up a church based on things you could see happening from a mile away mm. and then just move to a different state yeah. and just set yourself up I've to got do it. the I'll show same you. thing I'll again I'll show you the video uh, at, like it's them awkwardly holding hands the entire video sharing a embarrassing aren't men silly um, story about their marriage and it's just awful it's like you just you're just complaining because you don't you find holding hands awkward as I've as I've come to know when I try to hold your hand. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Okay, Fratelli Tutti, all brothers. Again, if someone's Italian out there, do you want to correct me? That's please do. Anyway, this encyclical of uh, Pope Francis is um, well. I mean, our byline is we just quite dig Pope Francis, really. We're quite, we're, we're, we're fanboys. Uh, we like what he's doing. Keep going, Pope Francis, is what we'd say. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, he writes this encyclical, he says, to all people of goodwill, yep. right? So he's not just writing to the Catholic faithful or even the wider Christian communities, right? This is similar to Laudato Si, where he's addressing the world as such. He's trying to bring people um, on this um, exploration of what it means to live in fraternity with one another, which he refers to as a, something like a single family in a common home. Now, that you may have um, encountered Fratelli Tutti in the in the media because it had some big ticket items, right? Some big uh, bombshells that it sort of dropped. So it has this fascinating passage where it says that essentially Catholic um, or in Christian doctrine around just war could not be applied no, yeah. in the modern context. Yeah. So he says it, it's not available in reality to have a just war. He says at two, um, paragraph 258, he says, never again war, yeah. right? So it's quite a declaratory statement that war is just yeah. ruled out. Not, not, um, a, not a novel position either. I right. think Benedict said something similar or, or or right. in his previous incarnation of Ratzinger, that that just war right. theory can cannot be applied to current merit, uh, current global technological um, context. Um, and then and then the other big thing that probably um, registered on the airwaves and so on is um, Francis's statement that the church has now firmly set itself um, committed to the abolition of the death penalty. Now this was. Um, already indicated in the Catholic Catechism that there was, you know, they can't imagine circumstances now in a modern penal system where the death penalty is uh, permissible. Mm. But now he seems to be saying, you know, no, it's just ruled yeah. out. Like, the, it is contrary to the dignity of a person to engage in um, death as a form of penalty. And they, and um, they, if they, um, they built a cathedral out of all the shits that were, at uh, the bricks that were shitted um, in, in the United States. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because you have the scenario where you've got all these Catholic judges on the Supreme Court of the United States who sit as the final federal court mm. in relation to federal death penalty. So, t- Donald Trump has apparently uh, executed more persons as a federal president than those before mm. him. Um, and, you know, admittedly, the federal court, usually its jurisdiction isn't to overturn a sentence. It's to allow an appeal or not. So, the sentencing takes place at a lower mm. level. But you do get this interesting scenario where like Justice Brennan, he, as it was a Catholic judge on the courts, said that he would not uh, rule in favour of death penalty. Um, I don't think necessarily just for his, because of his Catholic sensibilities. Mm. But, you know, what do you do? You know, the, I, I, we talked about this, uh, we alluded to this earlier around, you know, the tensions a judge may face uh, in this sort of context. Mm. But yes, you know, if you're a conservative in the United States as well, you would have loved it when Pope Francis talks about property, mm. which we'll get to, I think, later in this episode. But what does he mean by fraternity? So what I want us to go, do is take go through this as a kind of unpacking it a bit um, and why, you know, Dave and I quite like it. Um uh, what is fraternity, and then what stands against fraternity for Pope Francis? And I want to develop this, I think, as a kind of, you could call it a theological humanism, or even, I think, a form of Christian populism that he develops, in which we should be um, a populism that's not like the sort of bad populism you hear certain people mm. talking about, but actually that is socially oriented towards shared ends and um, uh, assisting especially those in most need. Um, and then I want to talk about um, his understanding with rights and how he sees charity, that is love, as the foundation of politics. And then there's this interesting theme that runs through the encyclical around pluralism or around localism and globalism or localism and universalism, in which he argues that the person must be grounded in a tradition and a place and they must have a firm sense of that place in order then to encounter mm. others and even to open themselves up beyond their own borders, yep. right? So, there's this interesting dialogue, which I think Francis is, um, you know, uh, he describes it elsewhere as healthy pluralism as well. And I think it's just a really good way to start thinking about um, how, do you in- how do you both um, appeal to say truth in the context of um, diversity and so on. Um, So, what does Francis mean by fraternity? Now, he's trying to cast here a vision for our common life. What are the true bonds of sociality? What should be a renewed political and interpersonal vision for our shared life? And Fratelli Tutti, in some ways, just develops and then synthesizes thought that you can find peppered throughout all his speeches. In fact, most of Fratelli Tutti is simply bringing together his various speeches, mm. right? And it reads often like sententia, you know, um, uh, aphoristic yeah. statements, right? Right, That are just almost like polemical, right? To sort of just kind of try to jolt us out of our um, apathy. Um, now, what does he mean? Solidarity typically refers to being responsible for each other, especially exercising service and cares for those who are in need, right? Uh, whether that's in a personal context or political. And that's because we're equals, he says. But fraternity, then appealing a step beyond that to fraternity, is something deeper and I think more theologically rich or theologically richer. Um, he talks about fraternity elsewhere as affirming that persons will be participating differently in the common good according to their abilities, their life plans, their vocation, their work, or their charism of service. Now, this, if you're um, thinking about it, really echoes St. Paul, right, talking about the body of Christ. It is that persons are parts, but that they're parts, because they're parts of a body, they're fundamentally valued Mm. as unique and necessary and 
revealing something of God to me, right? Our dignity here is found in relationships and contributing to a common life. And it's an understanding that I need the other person. I need their gifts. I need their talents. I need the relationship with that person. So he talks about we're a single family dwelling in a common home, that we should be engaged in a shared vision that seeks the best for another's lives, that we reach out in such love that we come to experience the other as our own flesh, right? Mm. So you've got that Pauline understanding again coming in there that we are one body. I experience you as my own flesh because you are necessary to my very life, right? Now, he grounds us, of course, in our status as children of God and as instruments of God's grace. So, elsewhere, he talks about the mystical fraternity of the Trinity that then spills over, that love spills over and forms a, a fraternal bonds between us mm. and our neighbors, right? Now, I this is, this is I think, just wonderful, you know, uh, lightning rod sort of stuff that is attractive. Um, it poses a criticism of current politics and it suggests a vision for what we need what I think can be described as a Christian social populism. Mm. And I think it even provides a challenge to us in the church, but we may not get to that point. So what Francis does, he's developing this vision, but at the same time, he just turns over some tables, right? Mm. He says, there are things that are contrary to fraternity, and he identifies a regression in the world. He thinks the world is, in fact, regressing in some ways towards conflict, towards aggressive nationalism, new forms of selfishness, towards xenophobia and failing to welcome those in need. So, Dave, what did you? What tables did you enjoy watching being or reading being turned over? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, he. there were some that we mentioned actually in the last episode, um, I the one that I like the most is um, there's there's a couple there's there's one that's to do with a a kind of bourgeois complacent cosmopolitanism uh, that shows disdain for for your just a disdain from your for your own sense of place and and rootedness in a particular community um, and there's also um, the 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 kind of he's got some fantastic treatment of our disregard for the elderly um, and our disregard for history in the past and and in doing this he kind of he he um he he shows the shortfallings of both the progressive and the conservative in different ways so for example there's, there's this wonderful passage I'll just this I'll try and limit my quotation of it uh, uh, but there's this wonderful passage where he says that we need a love capable of transcending borders and is the basis of what every city and country can be called in every uh, in, a, in every city and country can be called social friendship. Genuine social friendship within a society makes true universal openness possible. This is a far cry from the false universalism of those who constantly travel abroad because they cannot tolerate or love their own people. Those who look down on their own people tend to create within society categories of first and second class people of greater or lesser dignity, people enjoying greater or fewer rights. In this way, they deny that there is room for everybody. And I think this is a brilliant critique of both kind of nationalism and cosmopolitanism that, uh, you know, so often in progressives, what you see is just this this kind of disdain uh, for uh, their own political community or those or those that aren't as sophisticated politically uh, or intellectually as, as as themselves. And I think this is a fantastic 
critique of of that. And so yeah, what I the, the thing I love is just that is this kind of what the table being well, t- tossed over of of kind of bourgeois cosmopolitanism. So let's just stick with that for a moment, right? Because this is why I think it's a form of Christian populism that he's articulating. But it's a, but it's a populism for social ends, yeah. right? It's not populism in the sense of a strong man, you know, claims to represent we the people mm. and imposes authoritarian measures, right? It's about um, how do we collectivize towards, mm. you know, good ends, right, uh, of loving one another, right? So he, he, he actually talks about the need for the people as a mythic category, yeah. he says, uh, in which we have shared identity and social and cultural bonding that is built out of building a common project mm. together. Shared goals, yeah. right? So shared goals like care for the vulnerable yeah. as opposed to the demagogue who simply marshals our economic interests and our self-competitive mm. preservation and so on, right? And so he's explicitly, explicitly is against the notion that we are just simply an aggregate of individuals, yeah. that our community can be consisted of, you know, just simply as we talked about last week, marshalling, you know, preference calculation yeah. or so on. And he says this, we need then history and cultural traditions. We need this, both because these should be validated as part of the person, mm. but also he says they articulate true things. Yeah. They give the grammar for a person to actually explore what is true. Yeah, that's right. right. And he says they're necessary because that provides that sight of something that is true, you know, something that um, a community actually per, uh, perceiving and articulating what is good. He says this is a necessary defense against those elites who engage in, say, financial speculation yeah, yeah. Uh, against egoist consumers. <coughs> raiders, or po- he calls them. Raiders, yeah. yeah. People who speculate on the price of food, he says. Um, or egoist consumers or politicians concerned with preference calculations. Or liberals, he says, who are unconcerned with claims of the good. Mm. And he even then, so you're talking about, you know, being rooted in a place. So he says you got to be rooted in a place, but at the same time open to others. So he talks about actually forming new... Uh, unity or new collectives of the unemployed, the temporary and informal workers as popular yeah, movements. Yeah, that's right. And, and he, had, right? he had this, um, yeah, he had this fantastic critique of, and I, I, I imagine he's actually thinking, I'm, I'm actually not sure what kind of political, real, real political situations he's thinking of, but he describes this um, movement in parts of the world for kind of uh, political leaders to adopt kind of liberal ideology um, and in doing so, kind of flatten out the distinctiveness of the cultures of the people that they are meant to be serving. Um, and in doing so, um, uh, what seems to the to to other people to be this kind of great, um, uh, I don't know, li- yeah, liberalizing move, egalitarian move kind of thing, actually just serves the interests of the economic elite, who then can kind of transform that culture to make it amenable to the market. Um, I think that like, that is such an important critique. Right. And I imagine that so, he's thinking of South American contexts uh, where this happens or Central American contexts, even Africa, you, you see this happening. But a, a case could be made that, you know, in, in, in uh, Western countries as well. Oh, yeah, no. So I think, he's, I think he's doing that at two tracks. One is economic, where he's saying, you know, that actually this flattening out is just about the same economic interests invading every country, yeah. right? So we think, we've talked about this before, we think we experience this great heterogeneity through consumption of mm. goods and being able to, you know, cultivate your identity and authenticity, when in reality it's what Charles Taylor refers to as mutual displays of identity mm. that are marshaled by corporate cultures, yeah. right? So so there's the economically one, you're right. So to ex- experience in the 
West, and then it's certainly experienced in you know developing nations where you know Coca Cola runs rampant or whoever, right? But then I think he actually means it also at a at a more cultural ethical level as well. So so he this this discussion that he does in Fratelli Tutti it it, it um, echoes what he's elsewhere called healthy pluralism, mm. right? And he says you know we are in danger of turning society into a sphere. Mm. And a sphere is at every point, every individual is equally, uh, uh, presents this same equal character with respect to the center. All differences are smoothed out, right? And he says, what we really should be is a polyhedron. Mm. And a polyhedron, if you want to go <laughs> Google the shape of it, right? It's like multiple planes that nevertheless come together to form a rougher unity. Yeah. And so, you know, he's he's talked about this in the context of conscientious objections, for example, or conscientious difference in the context of sexuality and so on. And he says, you know, we should understand that people are engaging in differences there. They have differences of opinion, but nevertheless are participating in goods in common. Mm. So, you know, we've I, I tried to talk about this a lot in my book, right? The idea that, for example, a religious school might do some things differently because they see themselves as a community pursuing a certain ethos yep. and uh, development of character. But nevertheless we can understand that that is pursuing the good of education. Mm. So we have these rougher hues of unity, right? Rather rougher planes of unity. Now he, he, he doesn't mean then this is, I think fundamentally important and it goes, you, you know, you, you, raised this earlier that he has this really interesting dialogue between localism and mm. universalism right in which he sees you know this is not a relativistic claim it's not the sense that like well everyone can just exist in their own diversity mm. in fact he thinks that the claim that there is something universally true yeah. is what ultimately binds us to encounter yeah, one that's another right. there's this great you know we, we there's a great passage can i read a uh, yeah, second go. quote um there, there can be a false openness to the universal born of the shallowness of those lacking insight into the genius of their native land or harboring unresolved resentment towards their own people. Whatever the case, we constantly have to broaden our horizons and see the greater good which will befit us all. But this has to be done without evasion or uprooting. We need to sink roots deeper into fertile soil, fertile soil and history of our native place, which is a gift of God. Um, we can work on a small scale in our own neighbourhood, but with a larger perspective. The global needs not stifle, uh, nor the particular prove barren, um, our model, but that of the polyhedron, as you as you were saying. And so he's he's saying like, and I love that term, the genius of our na native land, meaning not just, and I don't think that is he's not meaning that in a hierarchical sense. He's meaning that there is this is a, a unique and particular insight, a unique and particular way of being. Uh, embedded in social, local social practices and cultural practices and uh, social imaginary that is unique to a particular place. And if we lose that, uh, we lose this kind of quest for universality um, uh, that, that can be the full, the, the, the solid basis for a kind of true universality or globalism. And a, and, a, and a true encounter, yeah. right? The idea that you encounter somebody not from some abstract identity or some abstract bundle of rights, yeah. so but you encounter the, a person. The people, uh, the concept of people is is always open ended. He says, uh, that, right. so it's it's constantly open to, you know. Right, so it's both it's it's both that you're grounded and then you encounter. So he has a great you know to build on the polyhedron uh, metaphor he uses. He he talks about um, Saint Irenaeus who uses a melody to make the same mm. point. He quotes him saying, "One who seeks the truth should not concentrate on the differences between one note and another." 
thinking as if each was created separately and apart from the others. Instead, he should realize that one and the same person composed the entire melody, mm. right? So this idea that we are a polyphony mm. that nevertheless is seeking a unity, right? That is, and I think that's, I think that's fascinating because it actually, you could, you could take this as an internal criticism to say uh, elements of the church, mm. right? Which we talked about this in the context of um, debates that happened over same-sex mm. marriage and so on in Australia, that the church wasn't willing to simply, so, simply to be a site of conversation on the basis that it articulates something it sees as mm. true. And because it can do that, it can welcome others into that conversation and yeah. so on, right? We ju- you just don't see that. Instead, you get this kind of what Francis actually in this um, encyclical refers to as local narcissism, mm. right? Um, protecting your territory, yeah. you know, at all ends and so on, as opposed to this kind of sense of like, well, yeah. truth is something to be, truth is there, and we are now encountering others in this quest for it and mm. so on, right? Um, so that that that's that's one theme that I think runs through, and it's and it's just a fascinating exploration of both both the local and the global, but then also this notion of healthy pluralism mm. that I think he develops elsewhere. There's also just simply, um, I think we've already alluded to this, but he says that our openness to the other person that we should have has been co-opted by economic powers, finance, and what he calls cultural colonization at one mm. point, right? Um, and, and instead, we need to engage with, um, um, you know, um, different understandings of economics, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, so this is where this is where um, let's talk about where he, he talks about property, and and then I want to try and develop that out into you know a criticism some people make of Francis. I think is unwarranted, mm. but on property, right? What does he say? He says that he has this. What some people have thought, I think, is. Um, quite radical, right? But he says we must re-envisage the role of property in light of the common destination of created goods, is what he says. And what he effectively says is that we are robbing from the poor. Yeah, that's right. And here he doesn't, he, he, he's not saying something new. He draws explicitly from the church fathers especially that he says that any form of property ownership must be for a social purpose. Ownership is secondary to the needs of others. And this follows from the notion that runs through his writing of a gift. Any gift, any talent is for fraternity. Mm. It's not for cultivating myself and my possessions, but it's for building a better communion. Right now, this contrasts, you know, and, and actually you can see this in Aquinas as well. So Aquinas talks about reasons why you'd have private property. And he says, you know, ultimately it's so that you can distribute to those in mm. need. Um, now, some people try and read that in a liberal vein and say, oh, Aquinas is saying you have a legal right to property, but you should be benevolent. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right? You should distribute and so on. And I think, no, Francis is articulating what I think is an authentic Christian tradition of saying that the internal purposes of owning property, the reason why you own property, the limits are limited. Mm, yeah. Right? There, there must be a limit to so property. he's quite explicit. So, he says... The right to private property is always accompanied by the primary and prior principle of subordination of all private property to universal destination of the earth's goods and thus the right of all to their use. So he's saying that the the, the right to private property is subordinate to uh, the, the the universal ends um, of, of property as such or not just property but of, of all the goods of the earth. Um, mm. Mm. And yeah. So you can't so get I, more I, explicit than, yeah... You, you only have a contingent right to your property. 
Yeah, which goes against, you know, what he calls like egoistic consumption, mm. this focus on self-preservation that he says has been heightened, as we mentioned last week, by the pandemic and so on, right? Um, and as you mentioned, right, um, it's also uh, grounded in the decline of, um, you know, it's sort of it, it, it sort of plays to liberal interests, mm. right? So, so he's critical of of liberals in particular. He says of some liberals at least who don't focus on say character or an understanding that there is a good to be pursued, right. right? And simply focus say on abstract rights mm. because then that just kind of allows them the liberty to say cultivate their own property accumulated right. and so on, yeah. right? Without any sort of architectonic yeah. end that that property is for. Now, uh, this idea that it's within the authentic. Christian tradition, I think, is important because one criticism of Fratelli Tutti has been that because Francis is directing it to people as such, that some people call it just too humanistic mm. and it's not theological enough, right? So, um, uh, Pierre Menin has a um, um, uh, criticism in First Things where he says, you know, essentially when Francis talks about the Good Samaritan, he ends up talking about humans as such when the Good Samaritan can only be read ultimately as Christ himself and then we participate in Christ, mm. right? Um, which is, you know, a common reading, allegorical reading for um, the Good Samaritan, that it is about Christ, oh, right? right? I, I don't but, think I'd but, come across uh, that before. Well, it's how Augustine, for example, uh, gives it as Oops. one of its major readings, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but like, but but then he uses it as, as a criticism to say we should expect the Pope to be talking more about Christ, mm. right? And so, you know, it's kind of not Christian enough. It's too humanistic. Mm. And I, I think, you know, sure, like in a sense that like Benedict, for example, uh, uh, talks much more um, Christologically, yeah. right, than for, say Francis does maybe. But at the same time here... I think it's wrong, right? Because I think yes, he's in, but he is he's in writing to everyone, but he's inviting people into Christian narrative, right? Yeah. So, and this is this is clear in two senses, mm. right? One is that yes, he talks about fundamental human rights, universal rights, and inalienable rights, and so on. But every time he talks about them, every time, if you see it in this mm. um, encyclical, he frames this in terms of personhood and pursuing the good, and dignity, and then ultimately yeah. rights being oriented towards love. Yeah. Right? And, and human dignity, Love. yeah, um, yeah, and uh, but also just if you know if you know the illusions that he's making, like this is all Christian personalism, and it's completely yes. in yeah, line with JP, JP two, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he says liberty must be directed above all to love. You know, liberty means not casting anyone aside, and it is the basis for true fraternity. Um, he's critical, as I said, of liberals who don't um, uh, form their views in terms of an orientation towards a good. He says that um, charity, which is to say love, is the foundation of all our politics. Mm. He talks about in the depths of every heart, love creates bonds and expands existence for it draws people out of themselves towards others. We are made for mm. love, and each one of us is a law of ecstasis. The lover goes out to their self to a fuller existence than the other. And then he draws from Aquinas to say that that's God's movement of grace, mm. right? Elsewhere, he talks about, as I said, the mystical fraternity that becomes our own. And he thinks this is fundamental both at institutional level and at the personal. Mm. So, for the personal, in the same way he opens Laudato Si, Laudato Si opens by saying, We are guilty of sin. Yeah. <laughs> that's how he yeah. opens, right? Greed and yeah. sin. We've been marred by sin and need grace mm. to reform ourselves, right? That's how he opens. Lentaldo C, which is directed to the universe, right? To the to everyone at large. And then similarly here, he says, here we have a weakness. We struggle against weakness, concupiscence, mm. right? The inclination to be only concerned with myself. Mm. And he says some liberal approaches again. Again, he's explicit because some liberal approaches ignore mm. this, this idea that there is a weakness in us. Yep. 
right? And that we need to actually be reformed by God, yeah. right? So he starts there personally, and then he goes on to say, so personally, we need to actually engage in fraternal yeah. relationship I mean, with each other. And, and, and then give up on apathetic cynicism that ends up kind of right, serving right, the ends right, of right. Yeah, the powerful. Right. So then, then he says, institutionally, it needs to be there as well. So he says, the politicians, so he says, politicians must give up on the cynicism, yeah. he says, and individuals yeah. must. And I found that fascinating. Uh, in order I to- I found it personally in order challenging. To, in order to- <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So he said, give up on that cynicism in order to do things like, you know, uh, commit yourself to attacking the structural causes of poverty, Mm. he says, right? The soul of the political order is social charity, he says. Mm. And he says, politicians must cultivate a tenderness for Mm. people. Now, that's let's take up that point you said about finding that challenging because yeah I thought that was so fascinating where he says at one point you know there is this cynicism where people are dismissive and mocking towards the notion of goodness and truth and so on now I and then he says with politicians that they draw away from people right they don't engage in tenderness now I read the first part where he's saying about cynicism and you know uh, the young especially it's almost like he's saying you know millennial sarcasm is not enough oh, <laughs> right that's not kind that of what, it's not enough but it's actually ends up serving oh, it's a problem yeah, serving yeah, yeah, yeah. the yeah. people that they think that they're uh, critiquing he, he says the the complaint that everything is broken is answered by the claim that it can't be fixed or what can I do this feeds disillusionment and despair and hardly encourages a spirit of solidarity and generosity plunging people into despair closes a perfectly perverse circle such as the agenda of the invisible dictatorship of hidden interests that have gained mastery over both resources and the possibility of thinking and expressing opinions Far out. <laughs> yeah, that's just great. I mean, that's great, isn't it? It's sort of this, yeah, this understanding that actually you go, and you see this in sort of university context, right? If people come out of it with an understanding that, well, it's not about the good, the true, the beautiful. Mm. It's actually about marshalling my technical skills for employability yeah, and yeah. these sorts of things. Then actually you are kind of committing yourself to a different kind of overlord. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and, and, the, the the kind of defeatism or utopianism that or dystopianism um, of um, of you know Facebook social justice warriors uh, it can end up just yeah serving the interests of the powerful by saying oh it 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 can't be fixed or the problem is so systemic that nothing that I do or no engagement that I have um, you know who does that who does that impulse end up serving and so it's the people that already mm. have the power. Or an understanding it's, that politics so it's is just simply marshalling from conservatism, basically. Right. Or, or, or the understanding that politics is just about marshalling conflicting interests. Yeah, that's right. Who does that serve again? Yeah. You know, but, which interests actually get served by that? Yeah. But uh, getting back to being finding a personally challenged, like it was very difficult to read for me to be reading at the moment. This is a time of year that I get very misanthropic, <laughs> and and have a lot of disdain for my fellow humans, but also fellow Australians um, and and fellow Sydney-siders in, in particular, right? And I, I realised, oh, actually, I do need to cultivate charity towards people um, and, sure, offer brilliantly insightful critique, <laughs> um, but at the same time yeah. actually care about the, fa- the, the, the moral fates of the people around me. Yeah, yeah, and, and he says this, especially in the context of what he calls hidden exiles. Mm. Yeah. So we have a problem of hidden exiles, as we discussed last mm. week, you know, those who are poor, disabled, the aged, the refugee asylum seeker, mm. and so on, especially. And I think what is super challenging is some of that discussion of borders mm. as well. But but to take it to that personal level you're saying, 
yeah, I thought that was really hard as well. Like when he's talking about friendship, you know, how do we cultivate fraternity and friendships? And he says that that building of fraternity for ourselves demands having free and open, authentic counter- mm. encounters, right? And how many times in friendships do we just sort of put up facades and barriers and so mm. on, right? That is just kind of actually contrary to developing a deep love for one another. Um, he says, he opens by saying Francis, as he's talking about St. Francis, did not wage a war of words aimed at imposing doctrines. He simply spread the love of God, mm. you know. And I'm not saying, I don't think Francis is saying, you know, you don't engage in words mm. and talking about doctrine and stuff. But he's saying, you know, there is a fundamental rootedness and love that must take place. He, he, he's very, uh, you said about, you know, the American conservatives that then lose their um, shit over Francis, mm. right, you know, and say he's not really a pope. Or there's some absolutely bizarre ones on Twitter, right, who are like, you know, I'm not, I'm I'm, I'm trying Athlete. to save Francis from himself <laughs> yeah, right. sort yeah. of thing. You know, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. You just And you look at them and you think, these guys are more Protestant yeah. than any Protestant, right? Because it's like, Vatican II is illegitimate. I get to decide. I get to make it up afresh, yeah. blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm a bit like I, running the Twitter account for the podcast, I am engaged with Catholic, the Catholic Twitter world for the first time. Weird place, man. It could be mad. It's very strange. It could be absolute yeah. mad. Yeah, it could be. And so Francis says at one point, and and um, where is it, paragraph, um, 92 he says yet some believers think that it consists this is um what um what uh cultural economic political reformation consists in consists in the imposition of their own ideologies upon everyone else on the violent defense of the truth or an impressive demonstrations of strength mm. all of us as believers need to recognize that love takes first place love must never be put at risk and the greatest danger lies in failing to love now i just think when i read that i think this there is a strand of um, of Christian thought that is essentially kind of um, um, oh, what's the word that used Fascistic. to be used for um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's just go with that, right? You know, but an idea that basically we need to develop a pure nationalistic boundary mm. in which we then define, say, the Christian yeah, yeah. or the Catholic nation it's, it's into the exclusion of the, others. The, 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 right? long, Dem- oh, it's like the longing a, for mythic dominion is, is what Benjamin Walter Benjamin would, would call Yeah, it. so you get in the Protestant context, you talk about dominion theology, yeah. right? But in the Catholic context, you talk about kind of these crypto fascist schmittians, so right? Sort either. of like. Yeah, like, yeah. People I mean, there look, was this- like there seems to be in this. There's this integralist uh, stream that seems to be looking for this time as one of the exertion of um, state Executive. violence. To re-establish not a just, political order yeah. that is yeah. and an executive based yeah. as well, right? So capturing the executive arm of government mm. in order to impose itself upon the people, or or to impose, or to um, start um, marrying temporal power with um, the exercise of coercive power for the sake of Christian mm. ends. But I mean that in a kind of like coercing heretics sort mm. of thing, right? Um, yeah, and there is, and it, and and it's fascinating during the election. When you see some people who are, who I at first had thought, you know, these could be interesting post-liberal mm. writers, and then they just revealed themselves as just bog-standard nationalistic conservatives, yeah, yeah. right? And you go, this is just, it was just like the path not taken. You thought this was just kind of, oh, that's deeply disappointing, really. In the end, what they really want is sort of a ethno-nationalist, or not necessarily ethno, they're kind of, they'll welcome in <laughs> different ethnicities that they're Catholic. Mm. But like, you know, and you go, this is just kind of not at all. And so reading Francis going, how could you not read this as a, um, as as just a rebuke? Mm. Hey, we're out of time. I think. 
<laughs> There's so much more that we could say. We could probably do a whole other episode on this. Yeah, there was a lot here. I think we should return to some encyclicals uh, next year as well. Um, so, thanks so much for listening to us. I th- oh, you know what we should do? Sorry, we should do one thing before you do your customary spiel. Um, it's this is probably the last episode of 2020. Oh yes, we've we, we've managed to I, I think amazingly, even though um, we've been living this pandemic life and it's been a bit irregular, for which we apologise mm. to our listeners. But you know, you've probably come to realise that David and I we're sort of you know scrambling at the best of times anyway. Um, you know, so we've managed to put out something like 20 something episodes still, which is pretty good, mm. I think. Um, and so we'll continue into the new year. We're going to have our next week's episode on doubt and then we're going to have a break or whatever. But but I thought at the end of 2020, we really needed, uh, needed to do two things. One, thank Dave for doing this because it is a lot of fun. And then secondly, we need to thank Liam Bray who does the production for this. Um, he puts these podcasts together after we record them. We should say anything that sounds bad in the podcast, like from a technical perspective, it's because David and I can't hold a microphone <laughs> properly, right? Whereas so Liam's actually amazing with mm. this. And if you listen, you know, it's amazing when I listen to other podcasts and they can be amazing in their content and the sound recording could be absolutely atrocious, yeah. right? And you think, good Lord, we're lucky to have someone that actually makes us sound passable. Yeah. Right, it makes us sound like we're not some <laughs> doing this in a tinny outhouse or something, right? Yeah, and I, we should also say almost congratulations to to Liam because he should have been. Uh, he almost submitted his thesis for his PhD, where he can become mm. a fake non medical doctor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but yeah, thanks so much, Liam. Yeah, thanks, Liam. And thanks, thanks, Joel. Thank you for keeping me intellectually stimulated. Uh, in the last couple of years, um, but and I hope you all had. I pulling, I pulling, I pulling kissy faces at Dave. <laughs> and thanks um, <laughs> for all our <laughs> listeners and the people that share us and um, um, and all that. The, the non, the people that don't treat us as an illicit pleasure. Um, <laughs> um, and I hope you all had a uh, wonderful new year. And some of you are still alive uh, by the time we, we listen. You listen to this. Uh, follow us on. We do have one more. We do have one more next week. <laughs> uh, please uh, like us on Facebook, share us around, follow us on Twitter at ucat underscore podcast, um, and we will talk to you next week as I talk about the depths of despair and doubt and existential <laughs> dread uh, <laughs> that uh, we can experience. Times. Talk to you then. Bye.